Blog Talk Radio. Truth Seekers, you're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage, or you're listening on iTunes, blogtalkradio.com, or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page, and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. And don't forget, every show is a free download on iTunes or from my Blog Talk Radio page. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook or Google Plus? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we've got a great show for you today. Next up, though, we're going to do something very special. It's um, Black History Month, and it's also President's Day. So I want to play for you a commentary I did back um, shortly after the 2008 election, and it was around the King holiday. And uh, we'll just play that for you. I thought it was very fitting for today. We all have heard great stories of hard work and perseverance in pursuit of the American dream. These stories instill in us hope and help to encourage us to pursue our dreams at all costs. When we encounter someone who has that hope and belief ingrained in them, somehow we recognize it. Sometimes we see what has not yet been manifested, but we know it's there. Whether that person is an accomplished adult or a brilliant child, we see something and we connect with it. What gets our attention is their attitude towards life their resilience, determination, and willingness to succeed against all obstacles. When you hear the story of someone who has achieved something great against all odds, it's almost like looking at the tools that a craftsman uses to make his masterpiece. Although the tools will not show you how the craftsman develop his skill through discipline, practice, study, and talent, it helps you to understand the magnitude of the task, the thought process, and the intrinsic value of the work that makes it so precious. Because in the story, you will find the steps to these accomplishments, along with the victories and failures. And in that, you will discover the character that makes up the man or woman from the choices they made along the way in difficult situations. And we also see the wisdom that was instilled in them due to living through these experiences successfully. 
Earlier this year on the King holiday, I congratulated President Obama and Dr. King on realizing the dream on that historic day. Congratulations, Barack Obama. Today, Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream is celebrated through you. How blessed are we to have our first African-American president be the stellar example of a loving father, devoted husband, scholar, statesman, community volunteer, humanitarian, and visionary. Back in April of 2008, many Americans got their first real look at the man we proudly hail as our president on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Many of you may think of this as one of many endorsements of products or books of that sort, but Oprah took a lot of heat on the Obama endorsement. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just Google Oprah Obama fallout. There was even a study written about it, the role of celebrity endorsements in politics, Oprah Obama in the 2008 Democratic primary by Craig Garthwhite and Timothy J. Moore of the Department of Economics at the University of Maryland. This study completed in September 2008 concluded that, and I quote, in total we estimated that the endorsement was responsible for 1,015,559 votes for Obama. The 95% confidence interval around this estimate is higher than the difference in votes between Obama and Hillary Clinton in our sample. This suggests that Winfrey's endorsement was responsible for the difference in the popular vote in our sample. Unquote. Now you get a better idea why today I want to recognize and thank Oprah for all that she did to help in the campaign to elect our new president. No one else could have accomplished what you were able to due to the relationship, not influence, and I'll say that again, the relationship that you have with your audience. You did what no one else could have done in endorsing and introducing Barack Obama to millions of Americans, and you did it without reservation. It takes a visionary to recognize a visionary. You saw and confirmed what Americans would soon see in our president long before most of us. But of course, this is your God-given gift to see the tools of the craftsman and know through his story his true potential. You took a lot of criticism after your endorsement and a lot of flack on your stand not to have Sarah Palin or other candidates on your show afterwards. But you held your ground. But I'm sure you fought much tougher battles than this. The media, spin doctors, can be very cruel and manipulative to those who endorse politicians, especially those who are not willing to play by their rules. But you got the Obama ball rolling full steam ahead and on the right track and helped Americans to see the real man before the lies and distortions could take any real impact. Who is Oprah Winfrey to give a political endorsement? Well, I don't think we'll be asking that question anytime soon. You are an amazing woman, and you did a wonderful thing, even though you don't need me to tell you that. But be blessed to know that many of us have not forgotten, thanks to you, Oprah, through all the lies and misconceptions about our new president before the election, you took a stand in history and presented this man of keen intellect, strong character, and supple disposition in a favorable spotlight and a measure of truth. In A Million Fireflies, Molly takes us on a journey of love and loss, incorporating both poetry and her real-life stories to give voice to the true language of a heart that has seen much, felt deeply, and survived to shine. But today we take an even closer look at how one is able to survive life's tragedies, press through the pain and suffering, and allow healing to begin and start life anew. Molly, welcome back to A Measure of Truth. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me again. Well, we really appreciate you taking time out to be able to come back. And, um, you know, I, I know that you have a very busy schedule as well, but um, it's funny, we have put this show together before all of this has gone on with Whitney Houston. And I just think I want to go ahead and you know, let people know that this was not a show that we planned to talk about the the demise of uh, Whitney Houston and her funeral or any of that. This was just something that I thought would be a good time to help people to really 
and especially after the holidays, to be able to really focus on their lives and the ones that they've lost and how they can sort of get back on track. And I thought that, Mala, you were the perfect person for that. Well, thank you for considering me to be the perfect person to touch upon such a, I think, difficult topic for many. Yeah, and uh, the reason why is your life has had a number of different challenges, um, you know, and just give us an idea um, for some of the um, listeners who may not know of your book, A Million Fireflies, and your story. Just give them a, a brief history. Well, I wrote A Million Fireflies. Well, it's been a five-year process to actually uh, launch the book, and it was released last year. And the book was really a long journey for me of emotional um, healing and really facing a lot of different challenges of not even wanting to share my true story around my life because it was so there were so many painful moments in it. And at the same time that there are painful moments, I wanted to also share some of the triumphs and the ways in which me and my family and my support system were able to kind of help me, uh, pull me from some of the darkest places that you can possibly imagine when you have so many losses, some very tragic and unexpected over a short period of time. And so it's a memoir that really speaks to my whole life journey thus far, starting from Laos, where my family had to escape the country during the Vietnam era because my father worked for the old government as a humanitarian and um, was blacklisted among many, many other people. And so we left the country um, on a boat to land in Thailand at a refugee camp and then later found sponsorship with the Unitarian Church in Maryland to come to the United States as uh, refugees. Wow. Wow. And um, from there, um, you discovered your your ability to write poems. And um, tell us a little bit about that, too, about the fact that you discovered that you were a poet. <laughs> well, I uh, really did not know what a poet or was. And, you know, at the time, I was 12 years old when I started writing what I thought was just me journaling. And uh, the story behind that is, you know, coming from such a traumatic experience as a child, you really repress a lot of things, I believe. So I didn't have much of a memory of my childhood until about nine years old. And my first memory, really, my first my own memory, because sometimes you have images of your childhood based on stories that your parents and, and um, you know, your guardians have shared with you, but not necessarily something that you remember owning yourself as a memory until nine. And at that time when I was nine, I remember opening up an envelope and reading a bill um, for my, my father and actually writing the, you know, writing the check for the bill. And that was my first true memory. So at the age of 12, I started having recurring dreams of black feet, um, you know, also distant sirens and a sobbing in my ear, and that went on for about two months. And it just continued to happen every night, and it really scared me. So I, I told my mother about the experience, and she got quite emotional. She shared with me that I was recalling the night of our escape. Mm. And it was in that experience when I realized so much can take place in our lives that truly happened, that existed, and somehow gets lost. Um, you know, and I just thought I didn't want the rest of my life to go through some experiences, whether they were challenging or beautiful, and just have them lost. So I started journaling at the age of 12, and it wasn't until seventh, I'm sorry, ninth grade when my English teacher, Mrs. Cartwright, asked us to do a creative writing assignment, and I tore a piece from my journal and submitted that piece, and she basically asked me to stay after class asked me if I actually wrote the piece and shared with me that, you know, in 17 years of her teaching life, she hadn't um, known a student in the ninth grade to write something like that. And she asked me if I knew that what I was writing was poetry, and I had no idea. I just thought it was journaling. So it's always come through me as a form of poetry, I guess. Mm, wow. Now, so your way of dealing with some of... Um life's tragedies is by um, expressing yourself through poetry. Now, what if that is not a, an outlet for someone that they have no talent for that? Is that still, do you believe, a, a good way for someone to start to be able to 
you know, deal with things, the hurt that they may have um, from a, the loss of a loved one or from a loss of, you know, there's so much loss going on right now. People are losing homes. They're losing their lifestyle. They're, they're being broken apart from their families. Um, how, how does one begin to really um, get away from the pain and start to, to do something constructive that heals? Well, I think you brought up a great point. Um, one of the ideas around this topic for the show uh, we talked about was, you know, grieving to a brighter place. And grieving is different from just the concept of the loss in itself in terms of death. You know, we grieve for many things. We grieve a loss of uh, a loved one through death, but we also grieve because we broke up with someone from a romantic standpoint. We lose a friend because our paths change and shift. Um, we feel betrayed and we grieve that, you know, the the end of something that was so made us feel so good and and so safe. And so for me, when I grieve or when I heal through the process, uh, my channel is through writing. And it's not necessarily that people necessarily have to be a poet, because I didn't even know I was a poet, but sometimes it's just finding a way to get it out. You know, for me it's writing. So sometimes it's journaling um, random thoughts that are impacting you and being very open and honest with yourself and just thinking of that safe place, whether it's on a computer keyboard or in, a, in an actual journal, that this is for you. This is a place for you to feel safe, for you to be open and honest with yourself so that you can face what's happening in its totality and in the reality of your emotions. And to also even help you figure out what it is you're feeling. Sometimes you just feel bad and you need to be able to process what that bad feels like and what level of bad that is. Um, sometimes it's uh, not just writing for many people. It can be music. It can be playing an instrument. It can be exercise for some. Uh, it can be dance for others. Um, and sometimes people turn to work if they're passionate mm. about their work and they want to really use that as an outlet, a way to express themselves. And I think that it's that the, the, the idea of being able to release the locked or blocked emotion that's taking place during pain is the most important uh, process in which we move from one place to the next, one foot in front of the other. And for me, it was through my poetry and it was through my journaling that really helped me to see um, as I was writing, it was also kind of leaving me. So it was, you know, this release of what was happening, this confusion, this heaviness on my chest where in A Million Fireflies I talk about the contrast of an elephant sitting on your chest and being able to get to a place where you turn that heaviness into, you know, strength and brightness and light again and then releasing that so that you can share your experiences and your healing process with others. Now, I hear what you're saying is, is I guess you really have to find something that you're passionate about, a way that you can express, because a lot of times um, people can't really express themselves and deal with the pain with just words, but sometimes that works for some by just talking to someone. So I, I guess it, it depends on the personality type themselves, but I, I guess it has to be something that you... Um, have an intense relationship with you know that's is an outlet for you or a talent so it can actually be an, an escapism like your work like you said but it also can be a, a pathway or a venue to be able to um, release these emotions as well yeah and it's a good balance you know because we can easily find that special place that we feel safe and run there and then we stay there you know, for some people it might be work, but then there's that balance between am I doing this as a way to release some of these, you know, um, ex feelings of, of pain and loss and just putting it somewhere. Uh, and then sometimes you can, you know, be too introspective. I have a tendency to withdraw and, and have quiet time for myself and do my writing and, you know, have a kind of go into my own private little cave. But there is also that balance of when do you come out, when do mm -hmm. you actually for help when you ask friends and family and share with them what you wrote in your journal in my case, you know, because it's really, it's a lonely process um, if you allow it to be. But more importantly, it's a personal process, which it should be, 
but it doesn't have to feel lonely. It doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to do it alone. There are moments when you need to be alone with yourself. You can't just, you know, keep busy. You can't just go out all the time and party, or you can't just throw yourself completely into your work and into a social setting where you're not really confronting the truth of what you truly are feeling inside, because sometimes the pain is so intense when you're grieving that you don't want to cope with it. It's too hard, and it's easier just to kind of, you know, turn up the music, go dancing, um, and so it's really a combination of being able to find an outlet of venue to express yourself and to get some of that energy out, and at the same time not allowing it that also to become too much of an escapism to not face and to not cope and to not deal with what's really happening inside of you emotionally because, you know, you really have to work that out. And the sooner you can face the experience as your reality and deal with it in a way that is healthy, and there's a trick to that. You know, it's not, it doesn't always feel healthy um, when you are suffering and you're thinking, gosh, am I just wallowing in my pain? Is this too long of a process? And everyone has their own cycle. You know, we can't judge someone when they've gone through pain and who knows what has happened prior to this that has hurt them, that has shifted their programming and their the way that their emotional track is going now um, that, you know, keeps them in that place for a long time. Now, you so, talk about this in two different phases because you had these writings, right? And that was a part of it. That was a start. You had started writing. But then when you shared those, it was another step or another phase also of that healing process. Tell us about the, the difference in the two. Well, I think, the, you know, they, they have to go together for me. And, again, I'm speaking only in personal experience because this is the way that I have coped with it. First, really writing and journaling helped me and putting it in form of poetry also helped me to even understand what I was feeling in the first place inside of my own self, being able to see it in my writing form and say, oh, my gosh, I'm really in a lot of pain or I'm really hurting, I'm feeling alone, I'm angry right now because of what just happened, because I've just lost the love of my life, I've just lost my best friend, you know, and I've lost my father. So many, many losses in basically a span of six years for me. And mm. so it's this multitude of, you know, just being hit one after the other, after the other, after the other. And as soon as you start to feel like you're healing and you're doing everything that's supposedly healthy, you feel like, you know, the universe and God is challenging you again and you go to this phase of being angry. And sometimes you don't want people to see that, quote, ugly side of you, especially if you're a natural nurturer like myself or a pleaser. Um, that's not always a good thing, but, you know, knowing myself, it's always this tendency to make sure everything's okay. Mm. And when everything's okay, we don't want to say things like, I'm so angry with God in the universe right now. I'm so angry with the world. I can't believe this has happened to me. And, you know, you don't want to come across as the victim. But if that's what you're feeling in the moment, you have to own that because you have to be able to know it's there first to be able to move from that place. And so being able to share that through my own personal writing with myself did one, you know, was a one level of healing to be able to, to confront it. And then it did move me in a different place when I started to share my poetry and I started to share with my family and friends what I was really feeling inside and be able to physically cry it out mm -hmm. um, versus just, you know, going into my little closet and writing in my book because there was another level of healing which literally releases energy, negative energy from my being. And I really believe that. I mean, it's my personal philosophy. I'm a big energy person. I believe that we hold so much of our emotions and it blocks us from an energy standpoint to move and to lift our spirits. And so it had to happen for me in both ways. I had to be able to see it, feel it, acknowledge it for myself first and then be able to articulate that and release it from my being in a way that also made me feel like it was impacting and shifting others' lives. As I was sharing my pain and what I was going through and moving through, I also felt like the other person I was sharing with or other people I was sharing with really connected now and felt like they were healing as well and they were not alone. And that gave me a sense of joy and peace, and it made me uh, almost prideful I'm proud to actually be able to share my journey 
It took mm-hmm. me a long time to get there, but it also allows me to this level of, of peace that what I'm going through is actually impacting others. Um, and that does make me feel like I want to do more of that. I want to continue to heal and move and journey along because now I'm not doing it alone. There's a lot of people who are moving with me. Now, Molly, um, you were in a unique situation because you lost um, a loved one, your fiancé, and you were actually there to witness that loss. And um, it was in a situation where it could have gone either way. And um, take us through that and the emotions you felt at the time because the, the concern was for the children at one point and then afterwards it was for the others that were trying to rescue well, um, the story unfolded, you know, on a very peaceful day, uh, July, uh, many, many years ago in 2003, and it was uh, a family picnic that we were going to, cousins and relatives and everyone getting together. And we had just um, personally gotten engaged and um, had a ceremony based less than a month prior in June of that year, and we really wanted to go to this family event and and share our joy about, you know, being engaged and moving toward our marriage. And it was a beautiful opportunity for him, Chris, as my late fiancé, to meet extended family members. So we went to the Potomac River, uh, Lisa State Park in Woodbridge, Virginia, and um, really it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon. And we were hanging out, having a picnic, and I went to prepare food when, um, you know, Chris, my brother-in-law and a few of the young children went to wait, you know, go wait in the water, have fun in the water. And a long story made short, a lot of the details are inside A Million Fireflies and a memoir, but for the purpose of this show tonight, it was a really painful yet vivid experience where within an instant I hear the screaming from a far distance and all I could see was everything turn from vivid colors to almost like a white veil covering my eyes to keep me from truly witnessing, you know, the the tragedy that was about to unfold at the time. And I hear the screaming of a lady saying, the boys are drowning, the boys are drowning. There were five kids in the water, all relatives of mine, and they were waiting in the water. Lots of boats and jet skis came, you know, tide came in. There was an undertow where they were, and it just swept them out. And, and now... They were all able to swim, but you've got, you know, several boys panicking, and all of them start to panic, and now we've got drowning boys. So my fiancé at the time and my brother-in-law were nearby, and they jumped in and swam toward the kids, and um, they saved four out of the five children, and two did not survive that experience, Chris and my brother-in-law's nephew, Chester. Mm. Two people in one beautiful Sunday afternoon. Wow. Uh, that, that, that's just tragic. And, you know, after this occurred, though, I mean, your your life suddenly took a, a turn. Um, how long did it take before you, in your own mind, could think of yourself actually coming out of the, the state that you were in? First the shock and then you being able to cope with um, someone who you had planned to spend the rest of your life with now not being with you at all? I have honestly felt like I was walking around um, inside an empty shell for, I would say, three months. And I would have vivid dreams of my life with my fiancé. And then I would wake up to the reality and I didn't know which was which. I actually wow. wanted to continue to my dream. And I journeyed about all of this because it helped me to really process and help me see which one really was the reality because it was very difficult at first. There was so much shock around mm. what just happened. I mean, it literally it felt like the rug was pulled from underneath me, whether that sounds cliche or not, but it really did feel like my world was in such a peaceful place. I had finally found true healthy love. And, you know, it was three months before my wedding when this all happened, and it just felt like I a, a truck just hit me. Mm. And so I did feel that heaviness, and I still, you know, had to go to work because we just bought a house together and we didn't plan properly because we weren't married yet. And this is what we do. We think we always have tomorrow. 
So I literally, you know, uh, within two weeks of the experience of having to lay both of my loved ones to rest, I had to go back to work. And I had to force myself to pull that sheet because it was summertime, which felt like an iron steel wool over my body, crawl out of bed, get into the shower, force myself to comb my hair, and get to the business of living. And it was just one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, one moment at a time. And it was really, really heavy. And yet I had to force myself. It was the harder choice because it was very easy on some days just to lay there. And I would say three months of that, you know, forcing myself out of bed to go to work before I could truly identify and cope with which one was my reality now and which one was in my past at that point in time. So there was a lot of concern about how long it takes, and I didn't judge myself for it. I, I, you know, rarely cried, though. It took me a long time to even own how important it was to grieve openly and honestly with myself. Um, I spent most of my time crying in the shower because I was hiding it from myself because I felt, okay, but, you know, if I turn the water on and it runs through my body anyway, I won't feel my tears. Mm. And I did, I did that, and I did a lot of writing, and that's when I, I did most of my crying. But a lot of the crying did not happen on the outside to the point where my family was a little worried, you know. Um, and after that experience with Chris and Chester, I had other multiple losses, and each time I got better at expressing my grieving process. We got better with coping. Um, it doesn't get easier the pain because every experience and every loss is unique to that relationship, and they're all special and need to be honored in their own unique, special way. Um, but the process and the belief system that I would get out of it, that it would become lighter and brighter someday, was there for me after Chris and Chester. Now, were there any um, family members or outsiders who were um, that actually helped you, or was it really just you being able to release this pain from yourself and make this transition that um, got you through? It was definitely a combination of both. I know that I went inward at first, um, mm-hmm. and then I realized that I was just tired of being sad and tired of feeling like I was doing it alone, and I had to own the fact that I was doing it alone because I chose that. You know, it wasn't because my family and friends didn't want to help. It was because I didn't know how to ask for it. Right. And Molly, what were the things that they said? How did they approach you? What What were the things that, that made sense to you when someone did try to communicate with you and help you? What What were the words that really sort of opened um, your mind up to them, you know, actually attempting to, to, to soothe your pain in some way? Well, I would say this. In the midst of the darkest parts or moments in our grieving process, and the pain is so deep, nothing anyone could say could be good. <laughs> we could always spin it into mm. some way because we're right. just very defensive, unhappy, angry, you know, woe is me mode, and nothing anyone could say could be right. But as we, you know, as you, you sit and you kind of meditate through it, you realize. What was soothing most to me was when someone just held my hand and said, I don't know what to do. They didn't mm-hmm. try to fix it. They didn't try and give me advice. They didn't try and tell me, oh, I've been there. I know what it feels like, you know. What they did was they just held my hand or hugged me real tight, and they said, I don't know what to do for you. All I know is that I want to ease your pain. I don't know how, and I just want to sit here and be with you, and you tell me what you need and what you want me to do. And that just gave me a sense of calm around not being judged, whether I was grieving fast enough, not, you know, not, not, um, I was just so much going on in my brain at the time and in my heart. My heart was so shattered. I didn't know my left from my right. Um, and I just needed to know that there was warmth around me, just physical energy around me that I felt held. And that to me was the most important. Hmm. Wow. Now, um, you, you said this took about three months before you could um, really see yourself coming out of this. And um, at that time, was it just the gradual process or was there something that really just hit you in your, your mind and your thought process that told you that this was enough, um, it was getting to be unhealthy and it was time for you to, to reclaim your life? Yeah, I'm naturally an optimistic person. I've always been. I've always seen a brighter side of life. So when I went to that place where everything was just so dark, I really didn't like it. I didn't like myself. I didn't like the way that I was seeing the world. 
And so, yes, it was this internal conversation I had with myself. And at the same time, I, you know, wanted to make sure that everyone around me also was okay. That's just my nurturing way, you know. I just Mm -hmm. want to make sure everybody's safe, everybody's fine, everybody's great. And um, it was getting to the point where I knew that it was not healthy for me to feel so heavy all the time. And, you know, I said it took me three months to actually get out of the shock, to know which one was my reality. Was it the dream I had the night before when he was still in it, or was it when I was waking up and trying to lift that steel from my chest and, you know, move? Um, But the process of feeling light again after the loss of both my loved ones for that, and that first experience of true tragedy that I faced personally, um, it took me probably two to three years before I felt like that elephant that came to sit on my chest lightened her load. Mm-hmm. And I say lighten her load because she doesn't ever fully go away. You know, it, it just you just don't disappear. Um, when I talk about the experience sometimes, she reappears just to remind me, but it's more of a nostalgia. It's more of a reminder that, yes, that did happen. It did exist. It was real in your life. But it's not about the pain. It's about all the gifts that they gave me. It's about all the things that because of their presence in my life, I'm led here. And it took me a long time to get to that place where I see it in this way. You know, it took me many years of journaling, of also counseling. I went to seek counseling as well. I do want to stress the importance of that because even if you share with friends and family, they are always so um, invested in you personally that they can't give you true objective opinions or thoughts and can't walk you through things. So peer counseling practice some help sometimes. Um, sometimes it's one-on-one counseling. But it's a safe place for you to go where you don't feel like you're hurting anyone from being hurt, that you're not impacting other people's grieving process or whatever, you know, we're going through. And it's a an objective place for us to just be open and honest and get some new perspective. So, you know, the combination of my writing, the combination of reaching out to friends and families and sharing with them what I needed most, even if it meant I just need some time away, so please don't call me for a couple of days. I just need quiet, and that's okay, too. Um, you give ourselves permission to need what we need at the time we need it, and then also give ourselves permission to get out. You know, we don't want to need quiet for three months, you know, three days maybe. <laughs> but um, that's really all of the ways in which truly helped me. Now, when when these Things when you were going through this process of healing, these hurts and the traumatic events, you, you said a number of people you lost in a short period of time. Did they all come separately or was it more together or how were you able to do them? Did you have to separate them in order to be able to deal with them as well? Oh, it was, they're all so different. You know, I lost my uh, fiancé and, and um, well, basically my nephew with the drowning. And then very soon after that, I lost my godfather, Mac, who really took care of me and my family. Um, he and his wife were members of the church that sponsored my family mm-hmm. um, back when, you know, the, um, when we came first came to the United States. And they just stood by our side the whole time, and he became basically my godfather. He passed away with cancer. And that was a really painful experience for me personally because he was such a dear person in my life. And it was a prelude to what I had to prepare for because soon after that, I lost my own father, not a year later, from unexpected um, bout with cancer. We had no idea he was sick. And we took him to the doctors on a Monday and on a Wednesday. We, they told us he was dying, and literally we had three weeks with him, and then he passed. And although it's anticipatory death, you can never prepare for losing the man of your life, which, my, you know, my father was just my heart and soul. We were so close. And there was a whole different set of, of grieving process that I had to go through there emotionally because this is someone I've known all my life. Um, And it's a different relationship from a romantic love, you know. It's not better or worse. It's just so different. Um, So I had to go through this phase of really, you know, missing the sound of his voice and and thinking back when we were little kids what he used to do for us. And it was very difficult. It was a different type of of loss, too, because I got a chance to say everything I needed to say with my father because we had three weeks in hospice with him. 
but I didn't get a chance to say everything I needed to say with Chris and with Chester. So that has a different dynamic to it as well. Right. And then we fast forward two years after my father's loss, and I was just getting out of that. Oh, and one thing I wanted to mention was when I was grieving for my father, I was also dealing with this um, whole um, unresolved pain that I was holding on to with Chris. I hadn't fully coped, which I thought I did, so I was double grieving when I lost my father because I recognized that I hadn't fully given myself true chance to acknowledge what I was going through when I was, you know, when I was when I was uh, when I lost Chris and I lost Chester. So that in itself was painful to have to do that together and really quote clean it all out. And then with my best friend two years after my father's death, um, he took his own life and. It's a totally different process there when you had a friend for some, you know, for for basically um, we had known each other at that point for 14 years, and we met each other in, in you know um, very very early on in our studies in college, and we're inseparable as friends, and that was so painful to lose someone that you were supposed to know so well to something like suicide, and you just blame yourself, and I had to go through that was the that type of loss. I had never experienced so much anger, anger with him, anger with myself for not seeing, for not knowing. I mean, all of it, truly all of it. And it's all different. I mean, it's hard to share with you, Michael, you know, how emotionally different they were, but the process of grieving still has to continue, and it still has to move us from this place of feeling so much utter shattering to a place where we can, you know, at least get a glimpse of light again, a glimpse of hope and trust that everything has happened for a reason, everything is as it should be or it would be something else. And it's so important to believe in a higher power and a higher purpose because if you don't have that, it is extremely difficult to understand why things happen in life. It really is. And even when we have the gift of the belief of a higher power, it is still sometimes very challenging as humans to cope with trusting so much that everything has a purpose. Wow. And that is true. And um, and the whole thing is, is you've not only gone on to, to pick up your life again, but you, you've managed through this process to still be creative and to um, bring value to the world in your poetry as well. Um, tell us some of the things that people have said about the impact of your book on them, A Million Fireflies. I will share how amazing the experience has been with me to release this memoir. Um, I was avoiding releasing a story of my whole life. In fact, I wanted to publish my first book, and it was going to be a poetry book. And um, one of my editors challenged me. And then my friend, Misty, um, forced me and pushed me to truly publish my book and really make it, you know, something where it's very powerful for other people and not just think of it as myself, for myself. You know, it's it's just something that I really wanted to own, that this was not my story. And it was really a story and a gift for everyone to go through a journey where they truly didn't feel alone in their losses. Wow. That's great. My wife has not finished it yet, but um, I was reading it and she, she picked it up and she grabbed a hold of it. And uh, so I'll go ahead and let her finish the book. Um, But um, yeah, we've had quite a few challenges um, this year and last year as well. And um, you know, it's, it's really amazing um, even though I think in our situation where she lost her sister, I, again, we had some time where she stayed here with us before she went into hospice and then she passed away. Um, I think it was maybe uh, a week after going in. And, um, you know, I thought it was the better way. You know, I thought it would help and resolve a lot of things. And we all knew that um, her time was near. But it didn't change things a bit because um, the grieving process was the same and it took uh, my family members quite some time to be able to recover 
And I think I recover the fastest, but I'm, I'm the person who always in crisis is <laughs> the one who's calm, and then I deal with things after the fact. But, um, yeah, but uh, it's interesting to hear um, some of the things that you talked about. And you really have to get to the point, I guess, where you stop ignoring your pain before you can deal with it. And that's generally the case with most people who try to suppress uh, the situation and, and try to make it into something that it's not. This is where it can all go wrong for you, and it can do harm to your your mind and your ability to be able to function as well. I think one of the um, most powerful comments about the journey with the million fireflies from readers is, you know, very much what you said. It's allowing them to stop going through the cycle of running and to understand that it's really important to listen to yourself, to reflect upon what's really happening inside because I think all of us have strong intuition. We were built with intuition and we know when something's off and we know when something is wrong, Um, but we don't sit long enough with it. Not many people, you know, are introspective or, or give themselves time to be. Not many people will sit and meditate and really ask themselves tough questions because it is easier to just let life take over and we roll with it. You know, it's hard to grab a hold and create our own destiny and make choices for ourselves and believe that we do have this thing called free will to shift the course of our lives in many ways by the choices we make. And if the pain is so painful and it's lasted for so long, there's going to become a time when you're going to want it to end and you're going to have to choose that. And I think that, you know, a lot of the readers, um, it's really resonating with them because everyone's gone through some level of pain and disappointment and hurt. And the book itself, although it touches a lot upon loss and grieving because I've had so many in a short period of time um, and I'm only in my 30s, um, I also, you know, talk about the joys and the happiness and the other challenges, not just about death, but about heartbreaks and disappointments and identity, you know, not not accepting ourselves. So there's a lot of self-love and self-doubt that's in there. And all of that require us to really cope with it and deal with it. And I think that that's one of the things I'm most proud of with A Million Fireflies is being able to bring so much humanity to um, the forefront and not just talk about my life and my experiences, but give the world with this sense of they are not alone. And for me, that was probably the biggest gift that was given to me when I would talk to others as I was grieving, and they would cry with me, and they would share their journey with me. And it really helped me to keep moving because I felt like if they survived and were able to thrive and move on with their lives, and not necessarily mean that you just forget what happened, but you honor and you hold it with you and release the pain, but honor the experience as a gift that's led you to exactly where you are today and choose that it's going to lead you to greater, better, positive things for yourself and for other people all around you. So for me, that is really important for other people to, you know, to take note of, um, that it's just about journeying and not being so alone in in the journey. Yeah, and I want to thank you. And I'm just realizing, too, that you mentioned that you had to be someplace by 8 o'clock, and I want to make sure that you don't miss that opportunity um, because uh, I'm sure the person you're visiting will be very, very happy to see you tonight. So um, we're we're at um, 748 now. How, How are you on time? I'm fine, and um, my grandmother is, is fine, too. Thank you for acknowledging that, but I'm, we're fine. I am uh, can continue with this uh, interview. Okay, great, great. Now, um, I noticed on your, your Facebook page, I saw these pictures with you and three other young ladies, I believe it is? Yes. Yeah, tell us about that. Something's going on with you guys. <laughs> Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful collaboration between three amazingly beautiful souls, um, my co-authors of another publication. We have Akia Garnett, 
who has her own uh, branding company. She's a branding and marketing expert. We have Tamika Bradshaw, who owns um, a couple of her own businesses, and she is really out there truly giving us insight on the day-to-day operations of uh, home-based businesses and community-based businesses. And then we have Jane Lovis, who is out there really helping other businesses truly understand processes, how to best communicate their effectiveness with um, leaders as well as their employees and making sure that they're aligned with moving forward into having healthy businesses that are profitable and that continue to expand and grow. And then, of course, there's myself with my messaging firm to help people articulate their messages from the heart to the consumers and to the right target market. We got together last year. Um, It was a wonderful, um, innovative way to help people, entrepreneurs, visionaries, with their businesses, articulate best and communicate communicate best with the world. And there's a process around really bringing back that passion into your business. So we do a vision, mission, mapping process to really help our business owners, our visionaries, our entrepreneurs get to a place where they're truly speaking from a level that's really based on their true vision and mission and their heart so they have a connectedness and a loyalty like no other with their consumers. And so we published that book um, several months after Million Fireflies was out, and we launched that back in August, September timeframe, and it's doing extremely well. So we're very happy to put together a workbook that's going to help others communicate from the heart. Wow. Well, you have to bring them along next time, and um, we'll have to talk a little bit about that as well and, um, you know, dig a little deeper find out what you guys are doing. Now, also, I want to ask you about, um, are, are there any um, public appearances or will you be um, performing your poetry or anything like that in the near future? Yeah, yeah we're actually, um, I, I formed a band recently called Afterglow, and we have a performance to support a local um, organization, the DC Divas. It's a women's football team here in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, we're helping with their fundraiser events uh, this Sunday coming up on February 26th in Silver Spring, Maryland. And so that's my next uh, performance. And we're going to do some original songs, and I'm going to read some of my original poetry. And then we've got a couple of other opportunities coming up with some uh, wineries that we want to um, also do some original music there. But I will be speaking to a Unitarian church, and this is beautiful. It is the Unitarian church, Davies Unitarian Church, that sponsored my family to come to the United States. Mm-hmm. They have found me. They uh, want copies of my book, and they want me to actually do the service um, on March 11th in um, Southern Maryland, and really, it's going to be a reunion of all the folks that are so with us and that had a part in really um, making that vote to bring an entire family from Laos to America. So it's going to be a beautiful opportunity. And I will also be speaking, um, looking for opportunities to speak more, but I will have an upcoming um, speaking opportunity with the Rotary Club International. And so those details are being worked out as well. It's a lot of wonderful um, places to share my story, my experience, and hopefully impact a lot more lives. Awesome. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. And um, definitely remind us again around that time, too. We want to do at least um, a post or something as soon as you have the marketing materials or any of the um, flyers or anything like that for that event. Let us know. and We'll be happy to post those on the page as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your support. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's always good to talk to you. I mean, we we tackled some heavy stuff today, but, you know, still enlightening, still refreshing uh, nonetheless because, um, you know, it's good to know that you can comfortably speak about some of these things and about the mechanics of getting yourself well and um, unburdening yourself, um, the pain and suffering of loss. So I really want to thank you. You you just really did an excellent job of helping us through that and um, just appreciate um, all that you do and um, being able to write a book and put your life out there like that as well and be able to share and help people. So um, just thank you for that. Thank you for having me, and I do want to close out by saying that I just looked up and there was a shooting star, so I guess there was a reason for me to share tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, (laughs) awesome. It's awesome, and we do have one life. I know I have one life in this physical form, 
I don't want to make the most of it. When you've had so much loss in your life, you value so much what mm-hmm. life really means and the significance, the impact that you get to make when you live it. So this is why, this is the reason for my being the way that I am now today. Oh, that's great. Well, we look forward to hearing from you again, and um, we definitely have to get together real soon, and we'll stay in contact, and I'll let you know, too, um, about the progress of social digital media, which um, we'll probably be working together on that uh, at some point down the road in some way, shape, or form. So, <laughs> I'm excited for you, and I'm excited for us to collaborate. I think it's a fantastic concept, and uh, I know that you're going to impact so many artistic lives with that work. So, Please keep me updated. Will do. All right, Molly. Well, thank you again, and we'll talk with you soon, and uh, have a blessed evening. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. If I may paraphrase Stephen King, the most important things are the hardest things to say. These are the things you feel ashamed of because... Mere words only diminish the thought. You see, words shrink things that seem limitless when they were in our hearts and minds to no more than just living size when brought out into the open. Oh, but it's more than that, isn't it? You see, the most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried. Like landmarks to a treasurer, your enemies would love to steal away and use against you at the worst possible moment. But still, you make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you like you're crazy, not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried when you were saying it. Do you know what's even worse than that? Is when the secret stays locked within and you can't get it out, not for want of the courage to talk about it, but for want of someone who will just listen. Just listen. As someone who spends a great deal of time searching for the truth, the lesson that I've learned from this quote is, if you want the truth, you have to be prepared to release all judgment and be open enough to hear and accept the truth in whatever form it might take. Judgment alters the truth by changing how it's told or presented. Not accepting the truth stops the bearer from sharing the truth. Ignoring the truth kills ambition and is a recipe for disaster and makes success impossible. We all over the years have learned to guard ourselves against deception, but I've also come to realize that in most cases, you don't even have to discover or discern the truth. You just have to let it be and see it for what it is. Maybe you have a story too. It doesn't have to be just like the one we've heard. Hey, I just want to let you know I'm here and I'm willing to listen. All I ask from you is a measure of truth. Well, Truth Seekers, we've just come to the end of another great show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. Before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you. Come on.
those other stations out there. They always got something to say. <laughs> sure. But, uh, not this station right here. We don't just got something to say, y'all. We got the truth. 